Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And just like always, we are rereading our favourite series of novels, the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. So here we are, Mike, wending our way across the ocean toward the end of The Hundred Days. Catch us up, would you please? What happened last chapter? Give us a flavour of what's coming this week. Oh, thanks, Ian. Would be delighted to. Well, last week in Chapter 8, a new day was proclaimed in Algiers. Mm. Stephen bought Mona and Kevin, the Irish slave children, but Lady Clifford would not help him get them back to Ireland. The vizier returns Stephen's gun. A corsair, Abdul Reese, took Stephen, Jacob, and the children out to the windbound Ringle to get them back to find the surprise. In Mahan, on an apparently repaired surprise, Stephen told Jack about the plans for the gold-carrying galley and where she was Mm. now. Admiral Franshaw announced that Lord Barmouth was to replace Lord Keith in Gibraltar to Stephen's great dismay. Now, this week, short chapter, but a meaty one, Jack tries to minimize the possibility of Lord Barmouth sending a different ship, not the surprise, after the gold galley. Stephen asks a favor of Lady Keith, and Jacob leaves the ship, goes AWOL, if you will, without permission. Fantastic. Well, let's get into it. Having had so many chapters of land-based action, Mike, at least this one begins at sea. It begins with the surprise sailing along at a very sedate four and a half knots. And Stephen wonders, since even he notices the pace here, he wonders why Jack isn't cracking on, but he reflects, as he would always do in this case, that Jack knows what he's about and thinks that no Corsair with gold aboard will be attempting to pass through the Gibraltar Strait without an inauspicious moon. So things are a little bit too bright and shiny at night for the Corsair to be able to sneak by. Stephen hears that the children, Mona and Kevin, are playing in the main top. He's less worried about them, though, than he is about this new commander-in-chief, Lord Barmouth. And we had this name, Mike, dropped in at the end of the last chapter. and We're pretty much all to seek about who this person is and what his orientation to Jack might be. Now, we do know that Barmouth and Jack had been formerly frigate captains. We know that they both had brilliant actions credited to them, although maybe Jack's, you know, he, he having the whole Cochrane sheen about his career, maybe Jack's could be said to have been even more brilliant than Lord Barmouth's. So Barmouth had a moral disadvantage here. And Jack had served as a master's mate under Barmouth when he was still known as Captain Richardson. And later, Jack had taken Richardson's son aboard one of his commands, rating him as a master's mate, which is a kind of typical little quid pro quo thing that they these commanders would do for each other. But this young boy, Arklo, had sadly magnified all of the negative traits of his father, the captain. He was rude and cruel and tyrannical. He wouldn't take any of Jack's strongly worded advice. And unlike the boy's father, both Jack and the crew could see that this young guy, Arklo, was no seaman. So Jack had put Lord Barmouth's son ashore in, in a tactful manner, but Arklo, with his influence, had soon become a lieutenant in a different ship. He's known to have had unrestrained floggings, floggings until his crew, in one case, had mutinied. And this had been so obvious to the higher-ups that the, the, this guy had never been given a ship. 
So with this history of his own sons kind of discrediting, maybe perceptibly at the hands initially of Jack Aubrey, Barmouth's got beef, you might say, with Jack Aubrey. He doesn't seem to be openly holding this against Jack, but all the same, Jack's thinking, if I don't get the surprise to Gibraltar in A1 tip-top perfect condition, this Admiral Barmouth might send somebody else with no damage to go and take the galley. And Mike, irrespective of that being a disregarding of Lord Keith's orders, we, we know, we know, that would never do, right? No, 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 for sure not. And, you know, this is where, you know, we're, we're starting to learn a little bit more here. Apparently, Surprise had not been wholly surveyed and passed while she was in Mahan. So oh. when Stephen arrived back, she looked so beautiful and pristine. And Stephen's now beginning to realize that apparently Admiral Fanshawe must have just taken Jack's word for her condition. And given the urgency of the situation and his fondness for Jack, just allowed Jack to sail right on. Stephen uh-huh. wonders more and more about her true condition, given the way that the carpenter and his mates and the crews are working all day into the nights, really right until lights out. And both Jack and the carpenter are oddly reticent to talk about what they're doing, suggesting that it may be improper or perhaps illegal. Wow. I, I think we've always known that Jack Aubrey's capable of something improper. I, I think we would all kind of... Uh sharp intake of breath i think before we think he's doing something illegal but who knows and he's always a bit defensive around a new admiral so anyway this little rumination is going on in steven's interior monologue right but we get exterior now it's interrupted by paul skeeping who comes up to announce that she's fed up that mona the little irish girl keeps throwing her clothes down from the top and in paul's own words running about mother naked but for her algiers shirt Stephen says, well, I'll have Bondon run up some fancy pants striped with green and they being from Bondon and they being fancy and they being trousers rather than a skirt, she might well agree to wear them the whole time. This plan is put into place. It's successful. And both Mona and Kevin being the proud wearers of two new sets of, uh, of duck trousers never take them off. Not even on the day when Kevin spots a sail and nudges the lookout and tells him because the lookout's been looking in the other direction at some tiny boats. Uh, it turns out, that, by the way, this being the second last chapter of a Patrick O'Brien book and there being a sail on the horizon, it's even money, right, Mike? It's even money that this sail belongs to Henry Dundas. Sure enough. <laughs> Isn't it the truth? <laughs> sure enough, this is Henry Dundas's current ship, the Hammerdryad. Now, there's a little bit of a connection to the real-world Navy here. There was, in the real world, a 36-gun ship, formerly the Spanish ship Matilda, captured off Cadiz in 1804 and renamed Hamadryad, a a tree nymph in classical myths and, I think, in the romantic poetry of John Keats as well. And Jack is obviously going to be excited to see his friend. He uh, hangs out the signal, inviting him for dinner, and has Killick cooling some wine on the end of a 20-fathom line. E- even, he says, wine that we don't have. Even if we don't have it, get it cool. I did love that. Killing, having so much fun with Jack. About, Sorry, don't have that. Sorry, don't get that. Well, put something down there. Well, <laughs> Stephen and Jack climb into the foretop, and they want to watch Hennage's ship make sail. Now that he realizes that, oh, that's Jack over there, and I'm coming to dinner. And Bondin and Jack are kind of right up behind Stephen, make sure he stays safe, and they pull him into the top, through the lover's hole. So here we are in, in, in not too many weeks. Yeah, visiting once again. Thank you, Stephen. 
And they're rewarded up there with a glorious sight of sales, including a skyscraper to Bonded and Jack's delight. And when Hennish arrives on board, they compliment him on this splendid spread of cloth. He says it, it amazed and delighted both them and the crew. And then Jack kind of gets around to, I think, why he was so excited to see Hennage, besides his usual friendship. So O'Brien writes, and this is Jack talking, but but tell me, Hen, pouring him a stiff tot and speaking with an affectation of casual unconcern that deceived neither of his friends. So both Hennage <laughs> and Stephen are kind of like, wait a minute, what's, what's Jack doing here? Uh, what has Lord Barmouth in the way of frigates? So Jack is like, okay, wait a minute. How many people are there to replace us? And uh, I think Hedge really is getting that Jack's prying in here. Stephen knows exactly what's going on. And Dundas says that the Admiral has some battered 74s, but that Hedge's own ship was the last frigate that he'll have. So, you know, without Hedge, he's got no frigates until he's reinforced in about two to three weeks. So I'm sure... Jack is breathing an audible sigh of relief here. And, <laughs> and then and it goes on to say, reinforcements have been delayed by the weather, as has the admirals, the, the new commander-in-chief's, Lord Barmouth's new wife. And he says, that's Admiral Horton's remarkably handsome young widow. And that the new wife's absence has made Admiral Lord Barmouth crosser than usual. So, yeah. Ian... Hmm. What do you think? Admiral Horton's remarkably handsome young widow. I don't know. Do we know any of these people? We don't. It's funny. I had a flip back looking for Lord Barmouth. I had a flip back looking for Admiral Horton. But let me put it this way. If you flip forward, you're going to find out the connection to Admiral Horton and his wife. So in a phrase that will no doubt delight players of the Lubbers Hole Bingo game, um, stick a pin in Admiral Horton and we might come back to him. So... Jack and Henage continue chatting. They're talking about Admiral Lord Keith and Queenie, who we learn have taken a cottage higher up, closer to the town, closer to Gibraltar, with an excellent view of the straits and a fine garden tended by a scorpion. Now, Mike, I, th- I think you and I both bumped on this a little bit. Um, we were wondering, is this another natural history reference, Re- really tended by an actual scorpion, you know, with eight legs and a sting? Maybe I was thinking, is this a reference to somebody who was a former crew member of a ship called the Scorpion. Uh, but it turns out this is probably a reference to a slightly disrespectful slang word for someone who's a native of Gibraltar. Gibraltarians are called, especially in Navy circles, rock scorpions. So to say someone's a rock scorpion, or just a scorpion for short, is calling them a disrespectful name, a bit like calling somebody a redneck, but it's more, you know, more specific to Gibraltar. So... They've got this gardener, this guy who is a local, not a British incomer, not a sailor type, but a Gibraltar native to look after the garden. Nice. Anyhow, the conversation continues. They talk straight through eight bells to the end of the watch, at which point Hendage excuses himself saying he must be going. Of course, in the usual way, he's, he's always dodging punishment. He says he'll be flogged around the fleet if he doesn't speed on his way. Now, sitting alone with Jack... Stephen says that seeing Dundas leave in such a hurry in what she calls such a naval fashion reminds Stephen of a question. Might, he says, might Jack also then be in trouble for proceeding at such a snail's pace towards Gibraltar? And by the way, we had it really pointed out to us, right? At the opening of the chapter, Surprise is kind of slouching along at four and a half knots. And in the same conditions, 
the Hammer Dryad is leaping along with all of her Royals and Sky Sail sets. So there's clearly a difference in how these boats are being sailed. Jack has the explanation, though. Stephen says, are you sure about this, given that the new commander-in-chief is not your very closest friend, which is, as far as we know, putting it mildly. So Jack tells Stephen about the appearance of the new moon. We've, we've had the moon and its phases, and it's important in combat tactics, come up many, many times in the books before. And Stephen had already spotted that the galley corsair people wouldn't want to be out transporting gold in the full of the moon when it's really, really bright at night. So they're waiting for the appearance of the new moon. And Jack says, besides being a matter of illumination, the new moon in certain seasons is of the utmost consequence to Jews and Muslims. Now, I, I think this is meant to be around June, so I'm pretty sure this would not have been the season of aid, but I'd have to you know, go find an Islamic calendar and work all the way back. Anyhow, new moon we know is important. The commander of the galley whom they seek is one or the other, Jew or Muslim. And as a sailor, with tactical surprise in mind, was likely to try to pass through the strait as near to the dark of the moon as possible. And that tells Jack that they need to meet the galley somewhere south of Tarifa. Now, Mike, this sounds like a situation where Jack would normally put horses to the mastheads and spring into action, right? It, it does. It does. But I, I think that Jack's thinking, and he explains to Stephen, you know, I don't want to lose any spars by cracking on, and I don't want to arrive early and sit there under the watchful eye of this new commander-in-chief who dislikes me. Mm. He says he's known too many men, even excellent captains, who, in his words, and O'Brien's word, suddenly swell into creatures of enormous importance. And by that, he means self-importance upon becoming admirals. And so he's thinking, this guy didn't like me before. Now he's a lord. He's an admiral. And he says he's a guy who's perfectly capable of doing a dirty thing. Again, O'Brien's word. So he says, Jack says, you know, look, I want to I want to come in, you know, make my leg as quickly as close to this dark of the moon as I can. I don't want to be hanging around for any inspection. I want to come in, say hello, welcome to the command, and I'm on my way right out again here. And then he wants to turn the ship into a distressed merchantman and get ready for the eagerly expected meeting here. So, you know, kind of sounds like the old plan here. It really does. We, we've got an admiral who is believed to be capable of doing a bad thing, which is about, you know, two out of every three admirals in the history of these books. And this distressed merchantman thing, that's a very, very Cochrane ruse that they seem to have in mind. Now, this is all a good plan, which might have worked had the commander-in-chief been sitting in Gibraltar. But O'Brien tells us in the text that he's not. He's actually afloat, and they encounter him out at sea off Gibraltar, exercising all the vessels in his command, which we know doesn't include very many frigates, but it includes plenty of other vessels besides. The surprise then is surprised itself by this unexpected armada. They're spotted far enough away for Jack to hang out more sail and to come down quickly from aloft in a high state of readiness. However, the officers in Killick are still scrambling to put the finishing touches on everything, and it seems pretty clear that everybody knows that making a good impression with Lord Barmouth is critical to them all being allowed to continue on their extremely potentially lucrative uh, prize mission here. They watch then as Lord Barmouth puts this big fleet through various manoeuvres. There are lots of comments being passed, mostly unfavourable about the seamanship and the station keeping. And 
This all happens before sooner or later Surprise's number appears with the message Commodore Repair Aboard Flag. And it's it's noticeable, I think, that Jack gets the honorific of Commodore, which maybe points up to us what might be about to happen here. Jack gets Lieutenant Harding to start the salute of the Admiral a cable's length away, being sure to have spare guns loaded in case of a misfire. And of course, that's that's something the gunner, I think, already had in hand. Barrett Bonden already is there with the barge and shoves off with Jack telling the crew to row dry, which means don't go crazy with the rowing, pull gently because we don't want any splashes coming aboard and wrecking the uh, the appearance and the fit of my lovely uniform. With the barge just a cable's length away, the 17-gun salute starts from the surprise. And the implacable, that's the flagship, replies, hesitating after 13 guns, even though Jack's broad pennant is clear. This is the second time we've had Jack's honorific and rank referred to, and something's coming, folks. Something's coming. Meanwhile, they hear a roar from the quarterdeck. The, the hanging fire after 13 guns was a mistake. The remaining two are fired almost together. But Mike, this this all sounds like a bad omen for Jack and his status here next to the squadron in Gibraltar. Well, Jack tells Lord Barmouth about the mission that the prior commander-in-chief, Lord Keith, had given the squadron. He tells him all the intelligence they've inquired, the instructions and intelligence that's come from the ministry about his political advisor, you know, uh, Matron, about his colleague, this assistant who's fluent in the local languages sent by the ministry, the Muslim plot, the gold-laden galley, and all the French ships and yards that they've destroyed, which, you know, you would think this is a pretty impressive report here. He says he's been informing Lord Keith about all this in his dispatches because he had not known that Lord Keith had been superseded by Lord Barmouth. Lord Barmouth says he's heard something about the shipyards and congratulates him on his success. And Sir James, the flag captain, Jack's old friend, murmurs in the background there how he banged them about, talking about Lord Barmouth is kind of downplaying this a little bit. And Sir James is like, yeah, man, boy, they did it. But Barmouth asks Jack if he's prepared an official report. And so it's like, oh, no, oh, no. And Jack says, no, no, he hasn't yet. You know, Jack isn't expecting to be there for a good while here. So Barmouth says, well, the surprise can follow them back to Gibraltar with the fleet and then to have that official report ready for Barmouth as soon as possible. You know, so get to writing, get back to your ship, get to writing. <laughs> In the meantime, he asked Jack to send over Stephen and Jacob, the politicos, to advise his Lord Barmouth's politico. So, Mike, this is all going fine as far as it goes so far, but the real meat of the discussion comes next. Barmouth points out to Jack that his once handsome squadron, as gathered under him by Lord Keith, has melted away. And he asks pointedly about the schooner that Jack has in company. And Jack says it's actually the property of the surgeon and acts as their tender. So the Admiral says that the surprise plus a privately owned tender does not amount to a squadron and therefore it would be more proper if he should strike down his broad pennant when he returns to his ship. And Mike, I'm, I'm giving myself a big boo here to, to Lord Barmouth. This is echoes of Admiral Bertie back in the Mauritius command who did more or less the same thing in a very offhanded way. This is also me thinking, just in the last book, we had all these meditations on Jack and the closing stages of his career and the possibility of being yellowed. The broad pennant looked like a step on the way, but here we go. 
he has to haul right. it down again. Yeah, has has nothing changed for Jack in the last fourteen books? Has he has he earned no goodwill at all from commanders in in chief? We'll have to see. Anyhow, one thing that we know has been going on while all of this action at sea and on shore has taken place, we know that the hundred days have been busy ticking by. And we haven't had any connection back to the real world of the campaign that's being fought in continental Europe. Jack had meant to ask, as it were, on our behalf for a bit of exposition about the campaign in continental Europe and had meant, therefore, to ask about the Allies' progress on land. But he's so put out, I think, by this rather disobliging announcement about uh, his Commodore's pennant that uh, that's the end of the conversation and he takes his leave. Up on deck... As readers, our question about the exposition of the 100 Days still obviously in the back of his minds. The flag captain gets to tell Jack about the exasperation in all quarters at the slowness of the Russians in joining up with the Allies. Jack thanks him, asks him to rig a bosun's chair so that those Politico guys, namely Stephen and Jacob, can come over in a bit of dignity with hopefully dry feet. And back on the surprise... Jack gets uh, Adams and sends for the logbook so that he can start his formal report for the commander-in-chief. There are lots of gaps in this report that can only really be filled by Stephen and Jacob, and he's contemplating these gaps when he hears the two politicos, the two intelligence men, coming back from the flag, back aboard the surprise. Yeah. Well, coming into the cabin, Stephen says that Jack looks low in his spirits, and Jack tells Stephen that he's afraid the surprise may have been done brown. You know, he's worried mm. that it, it may have been set aside and somebody else given the opportunity to intercept the galley. And Stephen tells Jack not to worry, that they've been talking with the commander-in-chief and his politico, and then with the politico, Matthew Arden alone. And he says, now, the politico... Arden is a very intelligent, influential man who's Stephen's known before. He's highly influential in Whitehall and that the Admiralty had sent him out because the surprises mission is such an important one and that Lord Barmouth is in awe of Arden, who's come out from the Admiralty and that Arden had done nothing but exalt over Jack's victories in the Adriatic and underscored how important this mission is. So Stephen sums up saying, you know, I don't think Barmouth would dare use Jack ill under these circumstances. Oh, my, this is something like good news for Jack. <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, Jack thinks so too. Jack thanks Stephen for telling him this, walks over to his violin and plays a series of what O'Brien describes as very rapidly ascending trills that vanish quickly out of hearing. And then sits back down. <laughs> so I love this. I, I, I love this idea. You know, he's so excited he can't stand it. And boom, he does this. And then calls immediately for the gunner and wants to know about the state of their powder. And then having learned about that, Jack gives the gunner orders to top everything up in Gibraltar. So we want to have all the power that we need. And that in addition to buy special powder for blue and red lights, making sure that everything else is completely fresh, as well as he adds some extra high congreves. They go on and say, the gunner's like, congreves? Extra high? And Jack says, these, these white starbursts here. And let's, let's come back to congreves in a second here. And Stephen adds that he'll be sure to top up his medical supplies as well. 
And then ask Jack, you know, how long do you think we'll have in town? Are we going to get there and immediately head out or to have a little more time? And Jack says about four or five days, again, thinking about how long it'll take to get there and when the moon is changing here. And Stephen says, well, are, are you intending to wait upon Lady Keith while we're there? And Jack says, well, yes, and, and Lord Keith as well. And Stephen says, well, would, would you mind if I come along? And Jack says, no, of course you can. So it's an interesting thing for Stephen to be so focused here. I, you know, I would have thought this was kind of a matter of course, but apparently Stephen's got something on his mind. But I've got something on my mind, too. I was going to say, wait, extra high Congreves. I was thinking, it's not Converse's the sneakers of my youth. What, what could this possibly be? Oh, my Converse have back, been back in and out and then back in again at least three times. Right. No, Congreves are indeed rockets. They're named after a fellow by the name of William Congreve, who came up with his rockets in 1808. So really, really recently in our Patrick O'Brien timeline here, um, based upon rockets that had been captured from the kingdom of Mysore, a kingdom in southern India, back to the lessons that Europeans need to learn that there was plenty of science and plenty of innovation outside of Western Europe a long time before we came up with any of this stuff. Uh, these rockets were used to devastating effect against the East India Company at the hands of the, uh, the, the, the Mysore guys for many, many years. And Congreve had copied this and evolved the design a little bit. He had designed rockets that could travel a range of anywhere from 600 to 3,000 yards, and 3,000 yards is a pretty decent way. There were versions of the Congreve rocket that were designed to provide light, were designed to act as incendiaries or act as artillery and deliver a high explosive charge. And Mike, this is actually not the first time we've heard about this guy Congreve. If you go all the way back to post-captain and go all the way back to the story of the genesis of the ship Polycrest, the double-ended ship, the carpenter's mistake, we were told how... Uh, in the days before it had been finally handed over to Jack as a sort of uh, as, as a bad job hand-me-down, in this trial firing of some secret weapon, presumably a rocket from the Polycrest, Mr. Congreve had been in attendance and had said, whatever this is, it's not going to work. And it had turned out that Mr. Congreve was right. Firing these particular rockets from this particular ship had not worked. Anyhow, Mike, I, I notice as well, as we're talking about Mr. Congreve, that the nights are drawing in. It's the autumn time and it's getting dark and perhaps even there might be the occasional firework outside. So why don't we take a moment to go step into the garden, sm smell for gunpowder as we're getting towards Halloween and, uh, and the 5th of November. If you can't find any fireworks, then hurry back in here because we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole welcome back i hope the chill in the air has uh, given you a refreshing break whether you're smelling your neighbors lighting their fireplaces again or ready for uh bonfire night or something it's uh it's a great time well on the day of their visit to the keith Stephen is acting a little bit peculiar. He's gone ashore, bought a new wig, the perfect pot of lilies of the valley. He returns to the ship, gives the children, Mona and Kevin, both a bar of chocolate each. They're, however, as delighted as they are with the, with the candy, they don't move. They can't stop staring at Stephen's head. And finally, Mona asks if he's changed his hair. 
And, and he tells him not to mind and shows him that it's only a wig. It's only a wig. Okay. So with, with this really kind of comic scene in mind, we move on to the visit to Lady Keith. And it, it, it's really funny. We should, to, to use our favorite phrase of the week, stick a pin in it as well. There's a, there's a reason why Stephen's buying flowers and putting his wig on, and we're going to get only the tiniest, vaguest, most indirect hint of what it could be until perhaps um, much later in the book, certainly after this chapter. Anyhow, this fact is bothering Stephen that Mona and Kevin had responded so badly to him having his wig on and then taking it off. And his first question to Lady Keith when he arrives is, do you remember the first time as a child when you saw a man without a wig? And they get into this very bizarre conversation with Queenie saying, well, father always took his wig off to swim at Brighton, so she doesn't really remember. And Stephen goes on then to tell her about Mona and Kevin, about their history, about their reaction to the the, the de-wigging and how they were so upset by this but that he'd been unable to comfort them he goes on and says how his hopes are that he'll find a kingship bound for the cove of cork so to take them back to more or less nearly where they would be at home and she says she'll ask the admiral and goes on to ask what what will you do with them between now and then especially if you're called to sea and to help out with that she offers to have her scorpion her gibraltar rock scorpion the local gardener who has a good wife and has grown children to look after the children this is this is a really nice outcome i think and mike it's another sharp contrast isn't it we had lady clifford just a couple of chapters ago really kind of pushing back on stephen and the children she said on behalf of her husband but lady keith is the kind of woman that stephen had absolutely been hoping to find and this kind of reception for the kids is what he was looking for He's super happy. He's going to bring them later on that same day. Lady Keith is happy as well and asks Stephen to tell her about all the interesting birds that he saw on the Barbary Coast. And Mike, we had anomalous nuthatches mentioned very, very kind of offhandedly in passing as something not worth paying attention to by Jacob. But now we're with a true friend and Queenie here is absolutely delighted by Stephen's story of the anomalous nuthatch. And this this sounds like a big character break for our Queenie here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure Stephen is back to going from doubting whether he can tell the reputation of somebody and judge them correctly. He knows, I've always thought well of Lady Keith. Clearly, she's out, as outstanding as I ever thought she was here. Well, the Admiral comes in complaining about all the apes acting up outside. He's unaware that he has any visitors here. He, he sees Jack and Stephen there with Queenie, and he just remarks about how they, in his words, stirred them up in the Adriatic and how happy he's been with all their dispatches. Says those dispatches had pleased him and pleased Whitehall greatly, and he hopes they'll both come and dine with the Keys on Saturday. Jack says he'd be quite happy to, but that he hasn't quite finished carrying out Lord Keith's orders yet. He hopes to have them completed in their entirety a little after the new moon, and then will be entirely at Lord Keith and Queenie's disposal. So an interesting <laughs> little segue here to, uh, you know, yeah, there's still something I've got to get done that you asked me to do. I think he's maybe trying to pull Lord Keith's goodwill back in here to run cover for him a little bit against Lord Barmouth. Who knows? <laughs> Could be. Well, let's see how it's all going to play out. Jack and Stephen walk back to the ship and we, we get a, 
there are going to be a few moments in these last two chapters when people are noticed at a distance. And here's one of them. Without any commentary at all in terms of what it means for the plot, Stephen notices Jacob, dressed as a local, as we know he can can do, boarding the Daily Tangier Ahoy. That's a small kind of grotty, filthy fishing vessel turned into a little ferry. And back aboard the ship, he sees a suitably obscure note left for him from Jacob, saying that he was leaving to talk with some people who may have some valuable jewels to sell. And I guess, Mike, we're expected to believe that this is a cover for something else that Jacob might be up to. But we also know that, you know, he's he is authentically a jewel merchant. And back at supper, Steve asks Jack whether Jacob then is officially on the ship's books. And uh, Jack's clearly in very good mood, not satisfied with banging out a couple of trills on the violin. He decides to bang out some gentle roasting of Stephen here. Jack says that Jacob is carried as a supernumerary without victuals, wages, or tobacco. And Stephen asks in a reasonably kind of straightforward way, who, who feeds him? And Jack says, well, you do, mate, just as much as you feed the children that you brought aboard. Any costs assigned to those three people, Jacob and the two children, is taken to the last halfpenny out of Stephen's pay. I find that I have been giving my life's blood to a parcel of hard-hearted mercenary rapacious sharks, said Stephen with a rather forced smile. This is the Navy after all, says Jack. Uh, and we go on with this little gentle roasting here. I love this part. Stephen goes back to the question that he'd really meant to ask because he was thinking about whether Jacob taking leave is any kind of a disciplinary problem. So he says, I do not suppose he would be flogged or put in irons for absenting himself without formal leave. And Jack says, no, in such cases, we have a punishment known as keel hauling, but do not let it distress you. The victims often survive. Well, fairly often. And then he decides that the roasting has gone too far. I am sorry, he says, this really is not the time to be facetious. I am afraid you must be missing your children cruelly. They were engaging little creatures. I do beg your pardon. And I, I love how the friendship here, Mike, kind of permits Jack to really pull Stephen's leg good and hard, but really, really quickly as well to spot the uh, the, the real state of Stephen's thoughts and his, uh, his emotions here. And it's a very, very nice sympathetic wind down from the friend who might otherwise have wound all the way up. Yeah. And St- Stephen meets him there. He says, yeah, I, I admit I'm missing them. I'm really glad that they're in Lady Keith's good hands. And he describes how the children had howled most pitifully when they understood what they saw as Stephen's betrayal, that they were going to be handed over to yet another stranger. But, he says, they were fascinated by the apes. Hmm. Nice, nice. Well, a messenger comes flying in from Lieutenant Harding asking the doctor to come look at Abram White, who's fallen down and is having a fit. It turns out that this seaman had brought three concealed bladders of rum aboard and, thinking he'd been discovered, drank them down entirely before the ship's corporal came for him. He then choked and pitched down the forehatch. Stephen, thankfully, was very used to the situation, checked him over, made sure you know, he hadn't broken anything, pumped him out, and put him in the sick berth. So another, <laughs> I, think, I think we'd had Jacob really, oh, I don't know what to do with this guy earlier in the book, and Stephen... Just another drunk. Yep, he's all right. Throw him in the sick berth. <laughs> well, Jacob returns and says that he had had a sudden word from a friend on what he calls the other side of the water. And he learned that the galley is now in Tangier. So it's right across from them, 
loaded, heavily manned, and as guarded as a galley can be. It's got two 24-pounders in the bow and two in the stern with a fair amount of musketry aboard as well. He says the guns are said to be very fine brass, exactly bored with truly spherical, accurate round shot. The captain, Yaya Ben Khalid, intends to pass the strait in complete darkness this Friday night. If the wind serves, then he's going to deliver the gold in Durazzo, take his tenth, and have his parents, wives, and children who've been taken as sureties released. And he also intends to use his great strength against every merchantman he finds on the return home. So, Jacob, with another intelligence coup here... To which Stephen reacts strongly. Yeah, he does. I, I, by the way, dropping the second of a couple of interesting Corsair names here, he says, well, that does sound like a bold stroke. Jacob then says, Murad Reyes, the other Corsair that's being talked about here, is very well known for his bold strokes. He's someone who always helps fate as much as he can. He's hired two smaller galleys as decoys. One of them's going to be sailing close to shore over on the African side. The other one will be in mid-channel while he lies under Tarifa and makes a dash along the European side of the strait. Now, there's a kind of funnel-shaped confluence here. We're talking about going from the west of Gibraltar where there's the coast of Morocco and the coast of Spain and the coasts come together. The strait of Gibraltar is just a couple of miles wide. So there's this big pinch point. And... You can probably stay out of sight when you're a couple of miles west of Gibraltar, but by the time you get in close, you've got to be, you know, within 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 sight of the shore. So what he's clearly trying to do is set up a decoy to give somebody the wrong idea about precisely which side of this approach run he's going to make. So with with all of this in mind, then Stephen thanks Jacob for the news and asks him to come and repeat the report to Captain Aubrey, who can obviously make even more sense out of all of the pilotage details and the lie of the land here. So, Mike, we've got a couple of different names here. We've got Yahya Ben Khaled, which seems to be an Arabic name. We've got Murad Reis, which I think is a Turkish name. What do we think? Might these be two different people or the same person? Well, it's it's interesting. You know, the Patrick O'Brien muster book thinks that this is faux pas, that, that O'Brien's mentioned this one guy first, the Arabic, then all of a sudden we've got this Murad Reis or Captain Murad. Or it could be that perhaps this is one person that goes by both names. As you said, it could be known to one people's by one name and to another people's by the same one. There's one that's that's really got a little history behind it. The first one, the Arabic name, I haven't been able to find anything. But Murad Reese has got has got some history, though. Now. I meant to look on the gun room and find out if this thing has been discussed in the past. I have to admit, I forgot to do it. So if <laughs> listeners know, while you know, while we're debating yeah. this, I'm, I'm going now only by the POB muster book. In, you want to tell us a little bit about where this Murad Reese, you know, where we've heard it? Because I know you're, you're familiar with it from a couple of different sources as well here. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting references here. There have been a few different real-life Murad Reyes's, so Captain Murad's. The name Reyes means captain or governor, and we heard that being given in connection with Abdul Reyes, who was the Corsair that Stephen was kind of shipping along with in the previous chapter. Now, this was the name of an Algerine Corsair famous in the late 16th, early 17th century, who was possibly actually a Dutch renegade, Dutch by birth, who had effectively become a, a Turkish pirate. And if so, that's the same Murad Reyes, who the history books tell us led 
the sack of Dungarvan in County Waterford in Ireland, which was where Kevin Mona had been kind of picked up from or picked up adjacent to. So that's one potential origin of the name of Murad race. So maybe O'Brien having read about the uh, sack of Dungarvan had taken the pirate's name and given it to this guy here. Another possibility is that there's a more contemporary reference. The Pasha of Tripoli's naval commander in the early 19th century, another renegade, this time a renegade Scot called Peter Lyle, he had borrowed the name Murad Reis uh, after he'd left the American merchant marine, had become an Arab privateer. He rose in the ranks, he became wealthy, married the Pasha's daughter in 1796 and was awarded the position of Reis, captain or governor. And he was quite the thorn in the side for the American Navy. And we've heard a lot about the, the 1812 frigates, the famous six heavy frigates, including the Constellation and the Constitution and the President. And these, they were originally set up as put to sea to, to cross the Atlantic and intervene with the harassment of American merchant shipping by the Barbary Corsairs, by the Algerine pirates. So Murad Reis was the name of one of the pirates that was kind of the reason why America's force of heavy frigates was really called into being. This particular guy then was a bit of a thorn in the side of the American Navy, having taken Commodore Bainbridge's USS Philadelphia, one of the earlier US frigates back in 1803 after she had run aground. Uh, he subsequently lost a bit of favor with his father-in-law, we hear. Anyhow, Mike, that's enough with the, uh, with the Corsairs and the Pirates and the Reyeses. Let's get back to Stephen and Jack, because they're having a conversation here and uh, we, we get to touch on a little bit of a bird metaphor here. So Jacob is explaining everything again to Jack. And, and O'Brien writes that Jack listens, his face gradually assuming the look of an eagle, one of the larger eagles that sees its prey at no great distance. So Jack is, I, I, I love this. You know, I can just feel this thing like, all right, now we know where he is. So Jack thanks Jacob for what he calls his matchless intelligence. Now, Jack assumes that if the wind has anything of west in it, so unless it's something that's completely against him, he's going to sail a little bit after midnight. Now, Jack notes that there's so much loose talk in Tangier, the fact that Jacob could find out about this, yeah. and that's right across the water from them, any account of the surprise doing anything unusual right now is going to just as quickly reach Brad Reese's ears. So he's going to stop all shore leave. And he says, you know, thankfully supply is going to be complete in the morning so that nobody can talk about what their plans are. And that the only thing he says that could currently betray their departure is that if all of a sudden somebody on shore says, ah, they put all their sick ashore, they must be getting ready to leave. So that leaves Jack in a bit of a pinch here. It does. And if they had had a long casualty list, this would have led to a bit of a breach of operational security. But good news. As Jack says to Stephen that he's ashamed to say that he can't remember the sick list, Stephen sets his mind at rest. Oh, he says, as to that... We only have a couple of obstinate poxers and a hernia, and those I can hand over the rail to my old friend Walker of Polyphemus late on Friday evening. And Jack is all over it now. Very good, he says. Very good indeed. So by the time any fool chooses to blab, we shall, with God's grace, be well out at sea. And that, Mike, is the end of chapter nine. 
Nice, nice. Oh man. So, like, like you said at the top, it's it's a short chapter, but there's some important pieces falling into place here. We've managed to get Mona and Kevin established ashore. We've got Jack back playing excited trills on his violin. We've got possibly the goodwill of an admiral there to be conciliated if it all falls right. And we've got intelligence about the galley with the gold and the moonlight and the wind and the straits and the map and the decoy and the lights and the rockets. It's it's so all set up for the next chapter, Mike. I can hardly bear it. I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. And, and it's fascinating because the, there's a part of me when I read this, I thought it is short and it does have kind of that standard thing of, oh, and, and I remember people would talk about, you know, episodes of Game of Thrones and others, you know, it's like, okay, all they did was move the pieces around so they'd be there and there. And so, but some people would say this is good storytelling. I, I believe for O'Brien though, it's, it's even more than that. I think it's O'Brien showing us, not telling us, that essentially that life is what happens while we're making other plans. Yeah. And, and I think this is yeah. so true. It's like, no, no, I didn't just move this stuff around to put a twist in here, a narrative twist here. This isn't a chat GPT invention in my story here. <laughs> this is what happens in life here. And, and clearly O'Brien has been living that in his own life. And we see that throughout the canon here. So I, I love this. Um, you know, the jeopardy that's happening here is is very similar, as we pointed out, the kind of things that have happened in other versions of it before. But this is so much more to me than O'Brien kind of repackaging his greatest hits here. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? We have a version of Jack and Stephen that are absolutely evolved in terms of time and experience from the earlier versions of their characters jack is is getting to be an older fella i wonder what that must feel like um he's a little worn and a little ragged um steven's been buffeted by big events in his life good and bad he's begun to doubt his ability to do the the diagnostic business of medicine and they've both been worried about how vulnerable they are to the potential ill attentions of lord barmouth so this great, great arc of their two characters is still going on. And we can't take for granted that we know how they're going to end up. They are not the Lone Ranger and Tonto who are going to emerge victorious at the end of every chapter. No, no, no. Good news, though. One thing that hasn't decayed and worn away is Jack's tactical savvy and his smarts about planning the attack on the galley, right? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And also, Jack was smart in his plan originally not to arrive too early. Yeah. Who knows that, you know, who knew that he would meet the fleet there? But he is set up here. He's done everything right. Yeah. And oftentimes he does. He split his squadron up just as Lord Keith so desperately needed him to. And, and that's all worked out great. Everybody's done their parts of the mission. But it's the way life turns out sometimes. It gave Lord Barmouth the excuse to strip Jack of his broad pennant. Now, what I'm hoping is it's not going to give him the ability to strip Jack of all the spoils of any victory that he has moving forward. And that might be wow. kind of a fascinating thing to watch, you know. So it's Lord Keith's orders, or is it now Barmouth is who he's acting under? Um, this this is no small prize that they're going after. Lord knows, given that it's Patrick O'Brien, whether they're going to catch it or not, or whether they get to keep yeah. it or not, as we've seen once before in those things. But um, I don't know. Yeah, We've had these things snatched from under our noses before at this point in the books. So we, we've got to take all of our possible anticipation and jeopardy and foreshadowing with a bit of a pinch of salt. It's 
clearly likely, given Jack's skill and the tactical setup, that they could be successful. But who knows what Jack and Stephen's chances are now of taking this frigate. It seems like the war in Europe is coming to a head. So it might even be that it's no longer absolutely critical to the minute that they intercept it. But for the time being, Jack's orders stand. There have been so many things that have turned against Stephen and Jack in the book so far. They've had this continuous painting of themselves, as we said a moment ago, of, of characters aging and with, with some powers still remaining. But some of the powers that they might have counted on in the past, perhaps fading. And, and Mike, you and I were talking before about you know, how it, it, it's, it's been the subject of poets and songwriters in the past, I think, to write about what happens when you get to that time in your life when you think to yourself, gee, I'm, I'm not the, quite the power that I once was. No, no, it, you know, it's funny. I'm absolutely certain O'Brien was not a Toby Keith fan, nor a fan ah. of, 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 you know, country music. <laughs> I have no doubt in my mind. But I know that as I kind of look back at this point in my life, a little phrase, a little refrain from Toby Keith comes back to my mind where Toby Keith, thinking about his aged self, says, I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. And so as, as I find myself gravitating towards that sentiment more and more often, well, let me see, do I have this in me one more time? You know, I, I'm wondering to myself, Stephen and Jack, do you have it? Do you have it in you one more time? I guess there's only one good way to find out, right? Mike, just as O'Brien himself might have been asking himself, do I have it in me one more time? For all of us concerned, there's only one way to find out. What do you say next week to just a tiny sliver of Patrick O'Brien. Oh, I would like that of all things. interesting birds that he saw on the Barbary coach. Sorry. <laughs> that he saw on the Barbary coast.